be in God's house amongst God's people and worshipping God. You know, we go from day to day, week to week, but uh, there's nothing more satisfying than coming into God's presence. So we want to turn, if you can, to Hebrews chapter 6 <coughs> and we want to uh, consider further the series, The Elementary Principles of Christ. And so we have been looking at this quite extensively now and I want to again look at what is mentioned in the last elementary principle, the spiritual foundations that relate to the Christian life. So let's read first and uh, the last one that we're going to consider reflects, it's obviously it's last and it's significant in terms of the way in which it's ordered and stated. But let's read verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary or the, the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, that's one, faith towards God, two, of doctrine of baptisms, three, of laying on of hands, four, of resurrection of the dead, five, and of eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. Now, it's important and that we find the words there, eternal judgment. Not just judgment, but eternal judgment because there is an eternality, a finality that is related to the judgment that is to come and relates to God's dealings with men that we must understand its seriousness because this is not something to be taken lightly not something to be just treated with, um, you know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. And so what we're dealing with here is uh, of a serious nature and there are various aspects that are related to it. And so uh, when we talk about eternal judgment and um, there's actually two aspects that we want to consider and what I've realised that again as I begin to study this through is I can't cover this in just one message and not even two really but in terms of the scope and the manner in which we want to address it again I'm going to have to take two uh, um, sessions to deal with this issue of eternal judgement and I want to break it up into two categories um, because when we talk about eternal uh, ju uh, judgement we're not just talking about that which relates to the sinner, the unsaved, the unbeliever the unrighteous, but also there is an eternal judgment that is related to the Christian, to the saint, to the child of God. And so we don't want to be ignorant of both of those and that both have their various applications and so I don't want to mix them together because they are separate and so I thought it best that we uh, separate them completely and look at one and then the other. So I want to look this morning at the, um, the eternal judgment in the context of the unjust, the unrighteous, the sinner, who is not saved from the wrath that is to come and the eternal judgment that awaits uh, as each one stands before the Lord. Because the Bible declares it's appointed for a person to die, a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So judgment is a very serious issue. Judgment is a very serious thing for us to consider. And so as we uh, look at these things this morning... Uh, it is important that we make the, the proper context in relation to this. Now, if you just bear with me for one second, 
Uh, you know when you do updates on your computer, <laughs> they, it resets your settings and so it's, it's gone out and it wants me to uh, uh, sign in. So it wants to look for me through the camera so it can recognise my face. Uh, see, there's modern technology. Making sure it's me, it is. Oh, gosh. Come on. I had to reset it because I got new glasses and now it doesn't know where I am. All right. <laughs> okay. Forget that. All right. Let me also just try and do one other thing. All right. Anyway. All right, so... Let's hope this doesn't give me grief because now it's not set. Usually it just stays on, doesn't give me grief, so I have to reset it but, so it doesn't switch off. So I do apologise for that. But um, as I was already mentioning, this issue of eternal judgement as it relates to the sinner. So we're going to look at this in two separate messages. Now obviously heaven's the ultimate destination but um, there's lots of different aspects that are associated with the afterlife as we may uh, consider these things because the, the reality is, is that uh, one day people will die and where they spend eternity is of a, a very um, serious significance. And not only that, one of the things that I've learned that relates even to my own understanding and experience is we become Christians but that doesn't mean that we automatically grasp all the different aspects that relate to the issue of judgment and not only that, that which relates to the afterlife because you know, we are familiar with the, uh, the terms heaven and hell for the most part but when you look at the issue that relates to hell you begin to realise that contained within this category is there's subcategories and there's other aspects that are associated with eternal judgment and with that which we know in the English word to be hell. And so... These, these things are important for us to consider because, again, remember, these Old Testament doctrines find their roots, or these doctrines of the Bible find their roots in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament teaches something about eternal judgment and it talk, talks about various, there's various Hebrew words that are associated with it and also there's that which relates to um, uh, the New Testament as well with the Greek words that give us further insight to how all this Works And so for the most part we're not familiar with those words. We're just generally familiar with the word hell in the English. But, uh, but that in reality does not give us a true reflection nor a comprehensive or distinctive understanding of that which relates to the afterlife and that which relates to the eternal judgment that is to come. And so we want to consider these things and we want to look at eternal judgment in relation to the, ultimately to the unrighteous, the sinner before God. Now as we have already stated, we are looking at this in our text that says eternal. And this must be understood because there are doctrines that surround, false teachings that sur surround this because you know, everyone wants to talk about God being uh, love and he is but he's just, he's holy. And so hell is a, uh, is a testament to the righteous character of God. 
And so I understand God in his love wants to save humanity, but in that it's not automatic. So uh, there's teachings that will talk about you know, universalism in which ultimately everyone will be saved. Or, there's, uh, or because we don't want to think of the eternality of eternal punishment, uh, there's the annihilation um, teaching that teaches that one day people will be cast into the second death and they will cease to exist and that'll be it. So there's no eternal aspect to it because you will have been destroyed. But see, this takes away from this doctrine of eternal judgment that is found within the scriptures. And so the issue is eternal judgment is perpetual. It is forever and so Daniel spoke of this in, in, in the Old Testament when he spoke about those that, that come forth from the dust of the earth and some to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. Everlasting. Jesus spoke about it as well and he spoke about um, uh, in, in Matthew 25 and he used these words, these will go away into everlasting punishment. Everlasting is the key word. Paul the Apostle, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he talks about the fact that we have come to be saved and we, we, are not, we will not fa- uh, face that, but there are those who will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul says that they will go away from the presence of the Lord in eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. And so that sets the tone. It, it must be clearly understood what we're dealing with here is of eternal, uh, is, or is eternal in its very nature. And so we can't discount that reality. Now I have already stated that when we look at the word hell, uh, really it falls short, the English word falls short in giving us a true understanding and indication of what the Bible teaches on this particular issue. Now, when we talk about hell, we, we automatically think of the lake of fire, forever tormented in the lake of fire. Now, that is still correct, but what you will, as we'll see, is that, hell, is that aspect and understanding of hell, which is correct, but it's only limited. It's only one aspect, and that's related to the Greek word, Gehenna, which we'll look at a little bit later, but there's other aspects that related to this word hell that we must understand in both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And so we would do well to comprehend these things because um, it gives us an understanding also of what Jesus has accomplished. But let's consider this further. Okay, there's words, for example, in the Hebrew like shol. Uh, there's phrases like Jesus used, Abraham's bosom. There's, uh, in the Greek, there's the word Hades. In the Greek, there's the word Gehenna. There's another Greek word called Tartus that is used once. And so we have these various words, like of fire, in the scripture. And we usually, in English, we have one word to describe hell. You know, like in the same way when we talk about love, God's love, in the English we have one word, but there's four words that really give us, in the Greek uh, a, a comprehensive understanding of what love is in, in terms of the God's perspective in the same way as it relates to this word hell. 
And so translators, uh, there have even some that suggested that it would have been best when they translated it that they translated it specifically to those words. Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New, Gehenna in the New where it's located and Tardis and so forth. That way we would know exactly which is being referred to and what is being said and taught in the Scriptures. And so we want to kind of dissect this, this this morning and I want to give you an overview and an understanding of these particular issues. Now the word hell appears 54 times in our English Bible. It is 31 times in the Old Testament and 23 times in the New Testament. And so of each occurrence, it appears in 31 times in Hebrew, it is without exception the word shol. Now there also the word shol appears a further 31 times but it's translated as the grave or the pit in three occasions. But the point being, on the 31 occasions where it's translated as hell, which is the word shol, it is indicating specifically not the grave. There's another Hebrew word, kuba, that relates to the grave itself, you know, because some will try and say, well, hell, shol is just related to that which specifically refers to the grave. But no, when the Bible refers to shol, it's speaking to that which is beyond the grave. And though it incorporates the grave, it's speaking about the afterlife, that which is beyond. And there's many scriptural references that give a clear indication that that's the case. And so we have that aspect. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, we have 23 occasions of the word hell and 10 times it's the word Hades and 13 times it's the word Gehenna and one time it's the word Tartus or Tartarus. And so... How do they all relate to the doctrine of eternal punishment? And that's what I want to consider with you as we work through this. Now there's this issue of Sheol. And this is something that is referred to throughout the Bible. I'm not going to go through specific references completely uh, because we don't have time for that, but I want to give you just an overview and you'll just have to trust that they're there. You can study these things through in your own time. But uh, you find this word shog, it's right throughout the Old Testament, from even in Genesis right through to the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets even, you'll find that there's a, a reference to this, to this word shog. And uh, what is important for us to understand is the word is not only related to the unrighteous. The word shol in Hebrew, in its complete understanding, refers to the place of the dead which incorporates both the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? And so this is very important for us to understand, especially in the in the plan and purpose of Christ, which we'll see in a moment. And so, Hadi, uh, sorry, Shoal is is referring to the place of the dead. It's referring to both the righteous and the unrighteous. And what's more important is that with contained within the Hebrew word Shoal is there's various aspects that are related to it. Or in other words, there's various levels or compartments that are within Hades itself. Hades is a place of the dead where departed spirits, that which related into the old covenant and in, the, in that period upon disembodiment, death, that's where they went. They went to Hades. But you either went to the good side of Hades or the bad side of Hades. And it wasn't just two parts. There's even, the Bible even refers to the lowest part. 
in uh, Psalm, um, uh, actually in Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, there's scripture there that refers to the lowest shoal, or the lowest hell, which is the lowest part. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, listen to the scriptures. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. This is Satan's fall from heaven. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, Satan wanted to sit on the highest part. He wanted to ascend above God. But yet God says you shall be brought not just to Sheol but to the lowest parts of the pit, the depths of Sheol. And so we understand that this is also uh, revealed to us in the, the Greek word tartus, or Tartarus in Second Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament which when we, this Greek word is the equivalent of, uh, of, this, of this aspect of, of Hades, or sorry, I should say Sheol. And it says there in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 7, have we got it there? I'll read it from here. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, or to Tartus, Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Jesus said that, the, that, that, the, that hell uh, uh, was made for Satan and his angels. But yet we know from the testimony of Scripture that this is where the unrighteous will go. And so this is very, it sets an example of all the unrighteous that will go to this place as part of, of, of the judgment of God. In Jude chapter 1 verse 6, and it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You see, this is Tartarus, and this is the lowest part of Sheol, that is being referred to here in the scriptures. But there's still a judgment to come, isn't there? The, the, the demons knew that. The Bible teaches that. And so this is where later we'll see Gehenna comes into focus and into perspective. But let's continue. Now this, I just want to touch upon now this Greek word Hades that we find in the New Testament. And Hades is found, as I said, on ten occasions... And basically, Hades, just to put it simple, is the equivalent of Sheol in the Old Testament. So when we use the Greek word Hades, is synonymous with the Old Testament word Sheol and represents and speaks of exactly the same thing. But 
in saying that, we understand its existence, but what is Hades, Sheol, like? Let's turn to Luke chapter 16. Because here Jesus himself gives us an illustration by telling us a particular story of what we know as the rich man and Lazarus. And the Bible says in verse 19, you read with me, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So here we have this first reference to Abraham's bosom. This is the place on Hades, the, the place of the righteous that, that Jesus is referring to. So let's continue. The rich man died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now this is, uh, this is this aspect of Hades that is being referred to. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can they from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now think about that, because we're getting a picture of Hades, of the righteous and the unrighteous, and that there's a great gulf fixed. And here is the rich man in Hades, and he is tormented. Now I must point out, this is not Gehenna, this is not the lake of fire that we'll refer to later in Revelation 20. But we have here still that which is a, Hades is like a prison, it's a holding place for those that will ultimately face the great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire and this is where Gehenna comes into focus. But nevertheless it's important that we make the distinction in relation to Hades and Sheol that relates to the Old Testament and into the New Testament here. And here's a man that is conscious, here's a man that can reflect, here's a man that can talk, he can hear and feel. And yet, this gives us a picture of that which is to come in the great white throne judgment when there will be those that will go into the lake of fire, into Gehenna itself. You see, this is all very, very interesting and it's very, very serious. You see, what's also important and what I want to take note of here now is that which relates to Christ because the Bible teaches that Jesus went to Hades 
Okay? This is important for us to, to grasp and to realise that Jesus went to Hades. This is in, uh, in, um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 27, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, he said, and he quoted from David in Psalm 16, and he says, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Is it just talking about that which relates to the grave? It's talking about the soul. It's related to the body, but it's beyond that. That's the point, and we'll see that through other scriptures in just a moment. But we find in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus spoke about Jonah, and he said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, this is the place being referred to as Hades. And Jesus went there. And it is in this place we say, well, okay, well, what is it that exactly transpired at this moment of time? We have further insight that's revealed to us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, for, for once, uh, once, suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the Spirit's in prison. Well, what's he referring to? It's talking about a proclamation that Jesus when he went to Hades because remember this is the promised Messiah. This is the promise of, of, of Christ becoming a man, of, the, of, of all that the Old Testament speaks of, of the hope of what was those that related to the faith of Abraham that they were waiting for, the seed that was foretold from the, the, uh, the Messiah from the foundation of the world. But here's Christ and he's now in this place and he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And that relates to, I believe, on both sides. He made a declaration, one of redemption and the other of condemnation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And so this proclamation of the gospel was going to bring further condemnation upon those that were already condemned and, uh, and to those that were, uh, were awaiting, amen, Christ was going to bring liberation and he was going to bring redemption to those that were in Abraham's bosom. Those that were um, that related to what we know as the faith of Abraham, those were, were, were waiting and patiently enduring whose hope was in the coming Messiah. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We get again more, more insight here. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. The Bible says, Therefore, he says, referring to Christ, in the prophet being uh, an Old Testament prophecy being drawn upon here, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. You see, Christ went into the lowest parts and he went into Hades. And in doing so, the scripture says that he led captivity captive. 
Who is this referring to? It is referring to those in Hades, in Abraham's bosom, who were awaiting, amen, the Messiah to come. And when Jesus said, it is finished, and there was a representation, we've talked about resurrection of the dead last week, and there were people that were walking around uh, and presenting themselves and so forth. But it was also, I believe, a sign that was related to that which was, uh, was transpiring at the completion of the redemption in which Jesus led a host of captivity. He led them, set the captives free. Hallelujah. And they went with him. Now they are not resurrected in a physical body as such and neither are we. That is still to come in the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. But now, amen, they are in the presence of Jesus and that's why when we die, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't, we don't go to that place. We're not in, we're part of that. That's, uh, that is, uh, Jesus has brought them out. Those old, what we refer to as the Old Testament saints, those of the faith of Abraham. And so, there's that aspect that relates to Hades and to Christ that is important for us to grasp. And I'm laying all this foundation for understanding because it is important. So let's turn to Revelation And let's look at chapter 20. Now this is a familiar portion of scripture. In verse 11 it says, Then I saw a great white throne. This is the great white throne judgment. It says, After the millennial reign of Christ, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. That's related to the devil and the angels and so forth. Then I saw the dead, verse 12, small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which was the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades, there it is again, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. This is those that now that have been awaiting in chains, in prison and have been in Hades this whole period of time in which they are awaiting that great day of judgment, the eternal judgment that is referred to and being referred to in Hebrews 6. But death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. In verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death. The lake of fire is symbolic of and refers to Gehenna. It is the Greek word and this is the ultimate eternal judgment of the wicked. And mind you, and I was having a brief conversation with Brother Sam uh, just yesterday and he, uh, and he was just referring to the fact, and it's true, that at this point of time, no, is there anyone in Gehenna? Not yet. But it's coming. That eternal judgment is coming. But at, the, at, the, at this point of time, there's still the relevance of Sheol and Hades as we understand it in the scripture. But Jesus will cast both death and Hades into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Did we cease to exist in the first death? No. So what makes us think that we won't 
exist after the second death. It's everlasting, eternal judgment. This is very serious stuff. You see, Gehenna is the eternal abode of, of angels and fallen angels and demons and men. And what I want to also want to, 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 I think it's important just to note this, just so that we're aware, is, and this is how I understand it too, is Gehenna, in, see we're talking, this is the second resurrection, right? Now there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. You see, in Hades, we have the dis- disembodiment of body and soul. Okay? And so, therefore, there's no body. But you see, there's going to be a resurrection for all. A resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust, at the, each in their order, as the scripture says. And in doing so, at that point here, at the great white throne judgment, they will be united again with their bodies and they will be cast into the lake of fire body, soul and spirit. That's why Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's more important for you to enter uh, into heaven without a hand than go to hell with body and spoke body and soul in hell. And that word is Gehenna. See, when you see the words, we use hell, but there's various connections to it. He's talking about the ultimate eternal judgment that is coming. And those will be cast into the lake of fire in body and soul. Think about that. This is serious. You know, the word Gehenna, again, I just want to inform us and educate us on this. This comes from a Greek, well, the word, sorry, the Greek word is Gehenna, and it comes from a Hebrew word which means Gehenim or Gehenim and it's actually uh, referencing to a particular place in, in the Old Testament that's known as the Valley of Hinnom. And so this is important because when you look at what this valley is and it's a valley that was on the side, west, I think it was the west side of, if I'm correct, of Jerusalem and this place was the place, the Valley of Hinnom. It was an elaborate place where, you know, where they went on, where the kings and, you know, all the aristocrats, I guess, and all the wealthy, they went there and, and this was where they, um, uh, you know, bathed and, and uh, had all their pleasures and so forth. And this is where the, also the Old Testament and their kings, the wicked kings especially, this is where they introduced uh, human sacrifice. And as they burnt their children and offered them on the, on, on the altar to Molech, and uh, as they engaged in other false worship of false gods, and so they would offer up as human sacrifice on the fire and burning uh, to, these, to these false gods. And so it's interesting that it became known because uh, 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 God ultimately brought about a judgment upon this place. And then, and, and as in, and then as it went on, this place became a refuse, a place of, of uh, actually, you know, rather than me describe it, let me read it, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. I, I, I took, I cut this out. Or I actually printed it, but this gives a very, this gives us an overview, rather than me doing it injustice trying to explain various aspects. It says, as to the derivation of the word, there is not 
there never has been the slightest doubt. Gehenna is the Greek form of the Hebrew Gehinnom or Valley of Hinnom. This valley was a steep ravine immediately under the southwestern wall of Jerusalem, watered by the brook, the brook Kidron and Siloah's sacred stream. In the time of the Hebrew kings, it was laid out in paradises, pleasure gardens, and the groves and the pools and the fish ponds. Here the wealthy nobles and citizens of Jerusalem had their country villas, their summer palaces. As the southeastern uh, extremity lay the pa- at, at the southeastern extremity lay the paradise of King Solomon with its tophet uh, or music grove and the grove in which the king, remember the kings of Israel under Hosea, that was under the groves in which they engaged in their false practices. But in this place, it's, uh, in relation to Solomon, the grove in which the king, which his wives and concubines listened to his uh, men singers and women singers and to the blended strains of musical instruments of diviner sorts or diverse sorts. The whole beautiful valley in short was full of those delicious retreats which are still found in the close neighbourhood of large and wealthy oriental cities in which the monarch and his nobles have sought repose from the sultry heat of the summer and from the frets and toils of public life. To gratify the foreign women with whom he consorted, Solomon polluted his pleasant gardens and groves with idolatrous shrines in which the cruel and licentious rites of Egypt and Phoenicia were observed. His successes imitated and outran his evil example. The horrid fires of Moloch were kindled in the beautiful valley and children were burned in them, passed through the fire. Gradually the valley of Hinnom grew to be a type of all that was flagrantly wicked and abominable in the type uh, a type of those that was fragrantly wicked and abominable to the faithful souls fallen on evil times who still worshipped Jehovah on the neighbouring hill of Zion and when Josiah came to the throne the good men could once more lift up their heads the groves were burned down the pleasant gardens laid waste the shrines shrouded and grounded to powder and to render the valley forever unclean The bones of the dead were strewn over its surface. Thenceforth it became a common cesspool of the city into which offal was cast and the carcasses of animals and even the bodies of great criminals who had lived the life so vile as to be judged unworthy of decent burial. Worms preyed on the corrupting flesh and fires were kept burning lest the pestilential infection should rise from the valley and float through the streets of Jerusalem. To the Hebrew prophets, this foul, terrible valley became an apt type or illustration of the doom of the unrighteous. They drew from its images of the worm that never dies and the fire which is never quenched. To say that a man was in danger of Gehenna was to say that his sins had exposed him to a judgment, the terrors of which were faintly shadowed forth by the sickening horrors of the detestable Gehinnom. And so what you have in this place is a symbol of what we know as Gehenna related to that in the Old Testament to the Valley of Hinnom and what it had become. And Jesus said, the worm that does not die and the fire that is never quenched. And it is symbolic of the great white throne judgment, the eternal judgment that will come on that great day and in which those will be cast into the lake of fire forever, ever, body and soul. 
You don't want to be there. Amen. Unimaginable torment, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know all the descriptions. You say, you're trying to scare me, Pastor? Yep, I am. Because I tell you, we don't want to even begin to entertain the horrors of hell. Oh, yeah, I'll go to hell and have a big party. (laughs) Will you? Will you? Or somehow it's just, you know, uh, someone said to me recently, I don't mean Pastor Werner, a Christless eternity. No, no, no. That that just makes it sound like it's it's, it's a party without Christ. No, no, no. It's hell. It's Gehenna. It's the lake of fire. It's eternal judgment. It's eternal torment. And so this is important to understand. And I hope and pray that we're getting a, a, a grasp of some of these things this morning. Where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. And in verse 15 of Revelation 20, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, does that mean that every... It said, and there's debate, and again I've had discussions about it, is it talking about, the, is, is everyone that's at the great white throne judgment going to go to the lake of fire? Because that is commonly assumed and taught. But you see, the Bible says anyone who was not found written in the book of life, because there are those, I mean, um, there are those that will live through the millennium, there are those who still will have to face judgment, there, um, you know, as it relates, and so therefore, there is surely those that which will be found in the book of life. But that's not to suggest that those that are being confined in Hades and await because there's a chasm, they can't cross it. There are those that are just awaiting their final judgment, their final destination. But I'm in saying that the scripture doesn't go beyond that and we can't read too much into it but nevertheless it does state anyone who wasn't found written was cast into the lake of fire but Gehenna is an awful place and you don't want to go there church you see we're talking about forever and forever and you know as I wrote this and as you sit down to ponder it because you know life's so busy we're just living and doing all the bits and pieces we're doing and we you know day to day But when you think about eternity, when you think about the reality of these things, it's very sobering. In actual fact, it it should put the fear of God into us. Because when, when, thank God, we're saved, we've passed from judgment into life. Hallelujah. When we talk about heaven, we're not even contemplating that place, praise the Lord. We've already received an inheritance. We're waiting for ours. Hallelujah. But you see, it makes us realise the need to preach the gospel, to share Christ, because so many people are dying every day and people stepping into eternity. And, uh, and yet we, we're seeing this reality of eternal judgement which really should sober us all up and motivate us all to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or there are others that are here this morning, you know, and I... I children... Children that grow up in church, they all need to be saved. They all need to come to know Jesus Christ. Just because we're raised in a church doesn't make us a Christian. 
People need to be saved from their sins. People need to be born again. You know, the Bible talks about the tares and the wheat, those that grow together. And that what's going to happen to the tares? They'll be cast into the lake of fire. Those that, the, the, you know, the, the, those that are not, those that are false, those that are not the real deal, those that are imposters. And so there's much to consider in light of all of this this morning. And so, again, I've just touched on some various aspects just to give us an overview of how eternal judgment relates to the wicked. And I pray that the Lord has, has helped us to understand some of these aspects. And in principle, this is how it works. And so next week, what I w- or next time, um, because I couldn't squeeze it in for now because I want to focus more specific on it, but then there's the eternal judgment that relates to the Christian, to you and I. And there's, a, there's another aspect inside to all of this as well that we have to consider and look at because thank God we're saved. But you, that doesn't mean that we won't face a judgment. It won't be the great white throne judgment, but we will be, ju- we will be judged. And so we need to understand these things ourselves. Amen? Praise the Lord. And I just want to conclude by saying if you're not saved, if you, if you don't have the assurance of heaven, if you in your heart know that if you were to die tonight or today, you'd go to hell, I want to urge you to call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved. And so don't wait till tomorrow. You might not have tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today. And that's why we've got to urge people today, now. And, and we've got to plead with them not to receive God's grace in vain because, you know, we just don't know. And when people step into eternity, church, their fate is sealed in that sense. Pointed to demented I ones, then comes the judgment. You'll know where you're heading, where your ultimate destination is. And so I want to urge you, if you're not saved, get saved. Call upon the name of the Lord this morning. Praise his wonderful name. Let's pray.